Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Let's take this moment by moment. Let's just get through the next minute. And the next minute, and the next minute. And at the minute when you think your suicidal thoughts and you're so unworthy and such a burden, they will dissipate and they will disappear over time. Things do get better. Please reach out for help. Here on Mad World, we make a point of talking not just to well-known faces, but also to professionals working in the mental health field. My guest this week has dedicated over 25 years to suicide prevention research. He's also been bereaved by suicide twice himself. And you may have seen him recently on Roman Kemp's powerful documentary for the BBC on this subject. His new book, When It Is Darkest, looks at the complex reasons behind suicide and dispels many unhelpful myths. His name is Professor Rory O'Connor. And for anyone trying to help someone vulnerable right now, or anyone feeling vulnerable themselves, I hope that this podcast gives you indispensable advice on how to talk to them about it and how to look after yourself. It's a subject that I realise may be difficult for some of you, but it is an important one. Professor Rory O'Connor, I feel like I need to call you by your your official title. (laughs) The first question we ask to everybody, every single guest who's come onto this podcast is how are you really right now? I'm doing well. Um, I'm a bit anxious about my book coming out. Um, We all have our our worry space and um, that's filling up my anxiety and at the minute because of course I'm just really anxious about what people will make of the book. I am anxious, let's just be honest. So your book, When It Is Darkest, Why People Die by Suicide and What We Can Do to Prevent It. I wanted to get you on. Now, suicide is still such a huge taboo, the big S, you call it in this book. Now, people listening may have seen you on two documentaries on the BBC. So the first one was with Professor Green that he did on on suicide. And the second one was more recent with Roman Kemp. And you are a an expert. You, you study suicide, in effect, and have done for 25 25- Yes, I know. Hard to believe. <laughs> you're, you're. Uh, when I saw that you'd written this book, I was like, I need to get him on the podcast because, as you say in the book, no suicide is inevitable, and all suicides are preventable right up to the moment that they happen. There are so many myths, and you wanted to write a book on suicide for people who do not read scientific papers, and that's what you've done. And I think this book will be of great comfort, not just to people that experience suicidal feelings and don't know what to do with them or after the first time, but also 
for people who perhaps worry that their loved ones might be experiencing suicide feelings. And then, of course, the other group of people, which is people that have been bereaved, who have been bereaved by suicide and how to deal with it. And you, Rory, um, you have been bereaved by suicide. In fact, can we start, can we go back to the beginning of your career and the man who inspired you to get involved in suicide research? Yeah, as you say, I've been doing this work for 25 years, basically since the age of, of 21, when I started doing this work as a PhD student. And and although at, as an undergraduate student, I was doing work on depression and sort of understanding some of the psychological factors associated with depression. And that's where I thought my PhD, I planned to do a PhD in that. But then basically out of the blue one summer, um, um, the person who turned out to be my PhD supervisor gave me a call and said, actually, there's this opportunity for funding for a PhD on suicide. Is this something that you'd be interested in? So, I mean, I just then just jumped at the chance because to my mind then, I just thought this was the most obvious next step for me uh, because really the most, I mean, the most devastating outcome from depression or any mental health problems or anybody's stressors in life is is obviously the most permanent solution to many people's problems of suicide. And so that really was my journey, my beginning of my journey. And that, and at that stage, um, I didn't know anybody directly who'd been close to me, who'd been affected by suicide, who died by suicide. And then the tragedy of it all is that uh, many years later then, the man who brought me in, my mentor, my first mentor into the field of suicide research and prevention took his own life. And so obviously I've been doing a lot of reflecting on that and because and, genuinely I don't think I would have been with you now today talking about suicide. I don't think I would have done a work on suicide in the way that I have done. So with all the regrets I have of the things maybe I could have done differently in terms of hopefully maybe supporting him and his hours of need, um, I'm just so incredibly grateful to him for guiding me down this path because, because every day is an honour to work with people we're all trying to understand suicide and, and then hopefully help people who are suicidal or working or struggling with, with their own mental health problems is helping them. And I just think it's a great honour that I've been allowed to do what I've done for the last 25 years. And you also, as well as losing a mentor, a colleague of yours, a friend of yours called Claire, died by suicide in 2008. I, we, we'll get on to Claire and that experience, but I think... It's important because there may be people listening who may think, why are they saying died by suicide? Or And this is something that I know you're very passionate about, and I am too, is the language around suicide and why it matters. And often people will say committed suicide, but there is a, an, a, an attempt in some quarters to get people to say died by suicide because suicide was until 1961 a criminal offence and so it harks back to that time that people are and it it kind of increases the stigma one assumes so can you talk to us a bit about that because I think that's a really interesting thing for people listening yeah absolutely and the whole language around suicide is something which it's evolving like all language it, it evolves and there is definitely I've spoken to so many people over the years loved ones who've lost somebody to suicide and they find the term committed suicide offensive because, yeah, as you rightly point out, it harks back to a time in the United Kingdom where suicide was a criminal offence. And actually in many countries, sadly, throughout the world, it still is a criminal offence. And we need to work harder and harder internationally to try and change that because criminalising suicidal behaviour is just, in my mind, is an absolute disgrace. And it just adds to stigma. And it basically means that the people who need help 
don't get the help that they require. But in terms of the language, yeah, so the, there's a recent study, which I include in the book, colleagues in, in the University of Bristol did, and they try to understand or survey people who'd been bereaved by suicide or been suicidal and ask their views on the different terminology. And so interesting, although committed suicide, we try not to use because, as I say, it harks back to this time where it was um, a criminal offence. It sort of splits some people because some people think, well, actually, it's a term I'm familiar with, so I'll use it. And, and then others, obviously, like me, are very strong with the view we should avoid it. And I suppose one of the examples I give in the book, which sort of makes that point really clear to me, is that I've come across many people who've been lost, love on to suicide. And actually, I talk about a lady in the book who she gets a physiological reaction. She talks when she hears committed suicide, she just thinks it's so cold and so basic clinical and it really makes her like stand back and sort of so I think for those reasons she finds it quite distressing so I think there's lots of people like that out there so my view is why should we try and uh, engender harm or hurt on others when we can easily avoid this term so my sense is yeah avoid committed suicide we also don't talk about a successful suicide because again that's a sort of moral overtone and the media guidelines and reporting of suicide suggest that we shouldn't talk in detail about method of suicide or we should ensure that people recognize that Suicide is never caused by one factor. It's always multifactorial. And often one of the concerns in the reporting of suicide is it's sometimes the causes of suicide are reduced to one factor. And that really helps nobody because it doesn't reflect the reality at all. So again, so my sense is just think about being compassionate. Whatever we're talking about, try and be compassionate and convey a sense of recognizing that if it's potentially going to be harmful or hurt somebody else or cause somebody else distress, just not use it. So please, my urge is, Please be careful in the language we all use around this really difficult and sensitive topic. There's a passage in the book, and I just, it's the language we use to describe people who express suicidal feelings, which can be incredibly harmful. And the sort of all the misconceptions and myths about suicide, which we will talk about. But I'm going to read this because I think this really, to me, it really hit home. Turning to self-harm and suicide attempts, pejorative language like it's only attention-seeking and manipulative is still used too often. It needs to be eliminated. To my mind, it's simple. Imagine the mental pain that someone must be experiencing if they'll inflict physical pain on themselves, often in an effort to gain relief. Is that attention-seeking? Of course it's not. It is attention-needing and it is definitely not done to simply seek attention. However, if you are asking whether a person is trying to draw attention to their distress, well, then the answer is yes, they are. They are trying to draw attention to the pain they are experiencing or they don't know how else to express how they are feeling. And our response should be, how can we respond with compassion and support rather than with scorn and indignation? Similarly, using the word manipulative is unacceptable. It misses the complexity of the motives that drive any behaviour. And crucially, it also misses the point that every one of us manipulates the people around us every single day. Any utterance or action that we undertake which seeks to achieve a particular end is manipulative. So never mind the offence caused. It just does not make any sense to label people who self-harm as such. I thought that like in that one paragraph, it sort of, it really cut through and illuminates actually the attitude we need to have and the attitude lots of people don't have. I remember doing an event years ago talking about depression 
had a woman stood up at the end and asked a question. She said, my teenage daughter says that she's depressed, but I think she's just attention seeking. What should I do? And I said, well, maybe give her some attention, (laughs) you know, and I know as someone who's experienced my own mental illness and suicidal thoughts that I always thought I was being a drama queen. I was overreacting. And there are so many myths around around suicide. And I kind of wanted to talk to you about some of them, because I think just listening to this could really help people. Because as you say in the book, all of us will at some point experience, if not someone we know dying by suicide, then someone who knows someone who has. So yeah, tell me, what, what are the main myths and misconceptions about suicide? Well, I'm really pleased you read that passage out, Bryony, because what I really hope to do with that was exactly as you described as cut through and say, well, how much pain will someone to be suffering if the only way they can think about managing that pain in whatever way it is, is by harming themselves? And I just think, to me, that, that's the burning question, the one I always come back to if somebody comes back to me and says, this manipulative idea, because it's, it's not in the sense that we use it in a pejorative way. So, no, so thanks for raising that. Going back to the myths, my, my God, there's so many myths. And one of the things, I think I, I, I outlined 14 myths in the book. You'll be pleased, I won't go through them all here now. But start with the first one, I think, is asking somebody whether they're suicidal. Plants idea in their head. Now, again, and I've been hearing this myth for 25 years, and it's just not true. And actually, the opposite might be true. And that we know that there's evidence out there that if you ask somebody whether they're suicidal, it certainly doesn't plant the idea in their head, but crucially, it could get them the help that they need and be the start. I often talk about this as a start of a, a life saving conversation. Now, that conversation is just a start of it because, of course, suicide prevention is more complex than just asking somebody the question of whether they're suicidal. But it's just trying to open up communication. I think one of the things I hope I try to, well, certainly I try to convey through the book is. At the heart of all our mental health and all of our actions around suicide prevention is about communication. If we can keep communication channels open and constructive, we can save people's lives and we can promote all of our our well-being. And I think that's supposed to be a really important message for, please, if you're concerned about somebody, don't beat about the bush. Ask directly, are you suicidal? And then their fear is if somebody says yes. And what I've tried to do in the book is give some tips on how you might want to ask those questions and then how you might respond. So certainly, yeah, so that would be the first myth I would say. So are there any particular myths you want me to go through, Bryony? There were some I really wanted to. Um, so all suicidal people are depressed or mentally ill. I think that's a really important one to bust. I mean, I do not question for a second that there's a strong relationship between mental health problems and suicide risk. But I think sometimes that we sort of then miss individual characteristics associated with every individual's suicide or suicide risk. And the statistic I've been talking about for many years, and I think I mentioned that part of the book is, so we know that in the Western countries in particular, depression is most commonly associated with suicide risk. But if you flip the question around and ask yourself, what percentage of people who are depressed actually die by suicide? And of the people who are treated for depression, it's less than 5%. So what that, the question then becomes, well, what is it? If you're trying to understand suicide risk, you have to look beyond mental health problems. They may be part of the, of the background of suicide risk. So part of that myth is looking beyond mental health explanations. And also just because somebody's got a mental health problem or mental illness, whatever term you want to use, it's not inevitable to become suicidal. And then there are other people who have never, ever meet a diagnosis for mental health problems, but maybe that 
they've been really difficult times. They may have experienced trauma as children. They may have experienced some major stressors in their life or that just the, the world may have fallen apart in front of them in their eyes. And those people are at risk of suicide. But they're not, they don't have a mental illness per se. So I suppose what my take on that, that myth is mental health is part of the landscape in which people die by suicide. But we need to understand stress. We need to understand social context. We need to understand cultural context. Because if you look internationally to Asia, for example, depends which study you look at, but about 40 or 50% of people who die by suicide in Asia will never have a diagnosis of a mental illness. Whereas in the UK or in the United States and Western countries, the argument is it's upwards of 80, 90%. I don't think probably as high as that. But the point is, it's just recognising that Behind every death by suicide, there's an individual who's not a category. They're not a diagnosis. They're an individual with individual circumstances and lives. I mean, you say it's a complex phenomenon. And there's something you say that we talk about often, people that have never experienced suicidal thoughts perceive suicidal people or people that kill themselves to be different from them. And the point you make is, no, that is that is not the case. And I think that's a really important thing to remember, you know, this this does happen to everybody. I'm sure there are people listening who sadly have been bereaved by suicide. So I'm so grateful we're having this conversation because the more we have it, I hope the less likely people feel that, that they need to go through with it. Yeah, because I, I want people to feel by reading the book, if, you're, uh, if you are struggling yourself, that you recognise that you're not alone and that there's support out there. Because part of the stigma or barriers which prevents some people from reaching out is that they think, oh my God, there's something odd about me, there's something different about me, and that's not the case. And I suppose it speaks to, I remember as a kid, there was a person who lived not far from our family, and he clearly was suffering from mental health problems. And in the school playground, our, all our conversation was, oh, he's, he's completely different from us, he's mad, and this obviously this pejorative language. And obviously what I've learned over the years, and all of us have learned, is that mental health is on a continuum. And it's not an either-or, it's not that people who suffer from mental health problems or die by suicide are different from us. It could be any one of us if the, the sort of perfect storm of factors comes together. And I'm trying to really highlight that is recognising that although I think it's really important we talk about suicide and mental health, we do it in a way which is about illustrating that it is complex. It's not one factor. And there is help out there. If we, if we know enough about ourselves and the people around us, we'll hopefully protect more people. The other myth about suicide, which is that people do it because they want to end their life, actually is say again and again in the book, it's not about wanting to die. It's about wanting to end the pain. And you say that often suicide is a, it's an escape from entrapment. Yeah, but I think that's so important, Brianie, because again, when I track my journey in understanding suicide over the, the last 25 years, I think when I started out, I was of this view, people kill themselves because they want their life to end. And what we and others in this sort of suicide research and prevention field have shown time and time again through speaking to others and the research that we do is that it is, it's about people are so overwhelmed by mental pain. And it's that overwhelming, that sense of being trapped by mental pain, which is a driver for suicide. And then that becomes so overwhelming and unbearable that the only way the person can think of, of ending their pain is by ending their life. And I think that really helps us, I hope, think in a more compassionate way about why people become suicidal in the first place, but crucially how we can help them. Because what we're trying to do then 
if somebody's suicide, you're trying to help them think of options. So we often think about the sort of psychology of suicide and that sense of mental pain, that entrapped mental pain. It's just like being in a tunnel. You can't see alternatives and you can't see a time when the pain will end. And that's the sort of mental trap that you're in. And I suppose if we if we as loved ones or people trying to make sense of somebody else's pain, or if I'm suicidal and I'm trying to make sense of my own pain, what I'm trying to do there is help people realize that even though when you're in that moment of crisis and you think things will never get better, they do. And that if you're looking, if you're an onlooker as a loved one looking on, it's helping that person sort of see alternatives, recognize that things will get better. And suicidal thoughts, we know, they come and go. We, we talk about this waxing and waning nature of suicidal thoughts. The other one I thought was a really interesting myth and actually quite a critical one, is that improvement in emotional state means lessened suicidal risk. Yeah, so sadly, I mean, I've come across too many people and professionals who have reported this case in which somebody has been, say, had been previously depressed or really low in mood, and then, sadly, a few days or a few weeks before they died, it seemed as if all was fine and their mood had lifted. So ordinarily, you would think, oh, they're, mood, they're in better form. Their mood is much more positive. That's a good thing. That's positive. They're obviously doing well. And the, the sad reality is, if improvement in mood is inexplicable, then the concern is it could be because an individual has resolved in the depths of their despair. They've said, well, actually, I'll end my life. And by making that resolution or decision of I'm going to end my life, their sort of mood lifts because they found the solution to their problems, the solution to their pain. Now, of course, if the, somebody's mood has got better because their medication is working or, or their psychotherapy is working or their crisis has been resolved, of course, that's understandable. So the, the myth is it's this inexplicable improvement in mood does not necessarily mean an improvement in their safety it could mean the opposite. So my message would be if a loved one does seem to have improved in their mood and we can't understand why, it's worth checking in with them to see how they are because it could be, as I say, sadly, that they have thought about suicide more as a solution to their pain. So really important myth to dispel. I thought that because I, that, you know, I didn't know that and I think it is a crucial... What are the other signs? Because this is, you know... One of the myths is that suicide happens out of the blue. But as you say, and as suicide prevention campaigners say so often, no suicide is inevitable. Now, that's incredibly painful, I imagine. And we will get onto that for people that have been bereaved by suicide. And I want anyone listening now who has been bereaved by suicide to know that we will we will get to that. Because, you know, I know whenever I do things on my Instagram about asking people if you're concerned that they're suicidal, often there is a feedback from people saying, well, I find this really difficult because I lost someone to suicide. And there is that sense, as you say in the book, of guilt and regret. They are common, common, common themes in people who have been bereaved by suicide. And so I want you to know, please keep listening. We are going to get to that. But what are the other signs? Because let's try and prevent this from happening again. So what are the other signs that you can look out for? You mentioned that sleep disturbance is a very heavy factor. So the first thing, just on your point, Brian, about people who've been bereaved by suicide and the guilt, and, and, and I've certainly felt that guilt um, very, very 
keenly and personally myself. So, so even though when we say about suicide is preventable right up until the last minute, it's bloody difficult to do. And that's a really important message that often the, the warning signs are easier to spot with hindsight. So it's really important that people bear that in mind. So even if you had the warning signs, sadly, we may not have been able to save our loved ones from suicide. But going on to warning signs in terms of, yes, trying to prevent suicide. I suppose I would always talk about changes in behaviour. So those changes in behaviour could be in sleeping behaviour, because we know if, if we've got disrupted sleep, interrupted sleep, sleep problems, interferes with all aspects of our life, but in particular, it affects our mental health. And if your mental health is impacted by lack of sleep, your capacity to problem solve, to regulate your emotions, to make decisions is affected. And think about it, suicide is the most ultimate, the ultimate decision that anybody could make. In the book, I talk about decision versus choice. It's not a choice. Somebody doesn't choose to die. It's not a real choice. It's their pain is so unbearable. So yet sleep disturbance, Changes in eating, drinking, sex activity, risk-taking behavior, depending on the, the age of the population or whatever. But also just listening to people's language about being hopeless, talking about being a burden on others, talking about being overwhelmed by pain, and talking about entrapment and hopelessness. These are, I mean, people do talk about these a lot who are, who are suicidal. So I would be looking at for, for those sorts of things. People talk about um, getting your life in order, and there definitely is... For certainly some who die by suicide, they sort out their affairs. So the things are obviously in place when they die. Now, again, lots of us sort out our life affairs. So the challenge for all of these sort of warning signs is for understanding, is that a warning sign that I really should take account of or not? And it's difficult to do. So I, in a sense, I have no easy answers because... Preventing suicide on an individual level is really, really difficult because we're no better statistically. We do the research that we and others do. We're no better than the flipping of a coin of predicting who will die by suicide. And that's in part to do with the complexity. Other things though would be if somebody has a history of self-harm of any form or suicide attempts, the single best predictor of any future suicide attempt or death by suicide is whether somebody has engaged in those self-interest behaviours before. Other ones include knowing somebody else, if they've, they've lost another, a loved one, to suicide. That would be described in the sort of suicide prevention literature as exposure to suicide. So bereavement, both close friends, family, that is another risk factor, sort of warning sign. So these are things, obviously, we're trying to look at this in the mix. But obviously, at the heart of it, I would think about is somebody who's talking about no options, their pain they can't see ending and that they're burdening others. That sense of entrapment plus burdensomeness and the research that we've done over the years, those two factors come out as so, so important. That's another, I mean, God, there's so many myths, but like the other thing is, is that lots of people, you know, that lots of people, there's a perception that suicide is selfish. And actually, as, as you say in the book, for the suicidal person, it, it feels like quite the opposite. They feel like such a burden on other people that they think they're going to be doing them a favour. I know, and that's just heartbreaking. I mean, I mean, it's just so unbelievably heartbreaking that when you think about it from all sides, from the people who are left behind and for the person themselves in that heat of that moment when they're in this trapped mental state. And sadly, I've heard it from people who have in, in suicide notes, I've read it in countless suicide notes, that sense of feeling a burden on others, speaking to people who've made 
absolutely, really, they're lucky to be alive. Really, really serious suicide attempts. And that's what they talk about. In that moment, they just couldn't shake. They couldn't see a time when they would not feel a burden or feel humiliated or a sense of shame or defeat or rejection. And that when stuff, negative stuff happens to somebody who's vulnerable is that they just think they're worthless and a burden and it's trying to help. And that's why I talk about this moment of acute suicidality in that you're trying to help somebody at that moment to hopefully just stay alive, hold on, let's get through this crisis until you're a bit more in a moment of safety. If someone is listening right now who is suicidal, is having suicidal ideation, what would your advice be to them? Because that actually is at the heart of this, is if you feel like you have no other options and that the only solution is to end your life, what can we say right now that is going to help that person listening right now? You know, I, I will say to them, you know, stay. What are the useful things I, I, I hate to sound like practical but well, no, th- I would think my immediate response would be that even though you can't see it now things will get better right so that's the first thing and then the next thing I would say is let's take this moment by moment let's let's get through the next minute and the next minute and the next minute and that at the minute when you think your suicidal thoughts and you're so unworthy and such a burden they will dissipate they will come down and they will disappear over time. And what we're what we're saying is, yeah, if you're not, I could say that things do get better. They do do change. Please reach out for help. And if you have reached out for help, and think, sadly, the number of people I know who've said, oh, I've, I have reached out for help and it hasn't worked. Well, please try again because the number of people I've come across over the years who have tried different counselling or psychological therapies or different treatments. And they kept going. They were able to keep themselves going and they found something that worked for them. There was like a penny dropped that helped them understand actually they are worth living in this world. And also remember that everybody has a role to play in this world that we live in and that you are important to somebody. So please, please do that. And then the other one would be if you think you cannot keep yourself safe, please ring the emergency services. That's the ultimate. If you can't ring somebody, you know, before emergency services, yet yeah, ring a family member, a friend you can trust, or your GP or another health professional. And of all else, phone the emergency services if you don't think you can keep yourself safe. Because again, again, from the experience over the many, many years, often we see people in some of our in our studies within 24 hours of a suicide attempt. And at that, in that moment, they might be sitting going, oh my God, I'm still alive. And they're regretting being alive. And then we meet them weeks later or months later, and they're so, so grateful that they're still alive because what they were able to get the support, the help, they got through that crisis. So please get through the crisis and we hopefully you'll get the help and support that you need. So you can call 999. You can go to A&E, can't you? Absolutely, yeah. I have a friend who has throughout her life had many suicidal thoughts and she has a checklist when the thoughts come, she has to go to the checklist. And on the checklist, there can be things like put on some laundry, make a cup of tea. Like, talk me through that, because in the book, you talk about safety planning. What does that involve? 
And can you kind of explain it? Because it's quite complex and I, I don't want to kind of, you know, get it wrong myself. Well, no, well, you got the essence of it by saying what your friend does. So, so in the book, we talk about safety planning, which is this um, sort of psychological intervention, which was developed by colleagues of mine in the United States, um, Greg Brown and Barbara Stanley. And what it is, it sounds more complicated than what it actually is. It's a six-step approach to keeping you safe in moments of crisis. And how it works is, is as follows. The first step is we try and get people to think about the warning signs, the triggers to their suicidal thoughts. So it could be things like, oh, um, when I get really agitated or when I'm not able to sleep or when I've been drinking. And then step two then is to help you think about how you can keep yourself distracted in those moments. So it's a bit like doing the washing or whatever it may be or phoning a friend or doing exercise. It's helping somebody think about, okay, so when those suicidal thoughts you feel them coming on and there's a crisis potentially escalating. Try and think about what other internal coping responses that you can think about and use. That could also be mindfulness or going for a run or doing exercise or whatever it may be. Obviously, we try and avoid things like going to the pub or things like that, obviously. But so that's your internal sort of step. That's your only step two. And then you're looking then at step three is looking at is there somebody else, somebody you can contact externally now not necessarily to talk about your suicidal thoughts but maybe who can distract you and so it's just having somebody or something a place you can go or somebody you can contact where you can really help distract you from those in that moment when the crisis is still escalating and then if that all isn't working then the next steps are looking at people you can contact in crisis so that could be having it's always good to have some at least one adult friend family member whoever it may be or professional you can contact and go I'm really concerned with myself here I can't keep myself safe and then basically the last step is step six is around keeping the environment safe and this is to do with this idea that if you've thought about how you might end your life it's trying to increase the the distance between you and that method in terms of the, the media guidelines I'm not going to go into the details of different methods, but basically what the safety plan, the last step is going, well, if I've thought about a particular method of, of ending my life, let's put as many obstacles as possible into you and that method. But the key thing going through this is often when a safety plan is being developed, it's usually done in the context of a health professional, a mental health professional, and the person in crisis. But one of the things I try and illustrate in the book is, yeah, that's, that's the ideal but the reality is if you have a family member or a friend who's suicidal, I would use this safety plan. And if you're using a safety plan, the sort of the real themes that run through it are it's about being compassionate and it's about being collaborative. And so that I always think about the safety plan is you've just two heads, two people thinking about how we can keep one person safe. So it sounds more complicated than what it is, but effectively it's just thinking about triggers or warning signs and then internal and external responses or coping, and then keeping yourself safe in terms of the method of suicide. I wanted to talk a bit about people who may be listening, who are worried about other people in their lives. I think often we think we have to have these kind of very complicated solutions. If someone comes to us and tells us that they are having suicidal feelings, there's a sort of panic. But in the book, you talk about someone who they were just walking and they were seriously considering killing themselves. And they came across someone they hadn't seen for years who just said, you're right. And 
the difference that that made to the fact that they didn't go through with it. Now, I wanted to talk about what you can do. So you, you talk about asking open questions. So not, are you suicidal? So not yes or no questions. So the couple of examples I gave in the book really make this, hopefully make this point clearly, is that any one of us can play a role in suicide prevention. Now, sometimes wittingly and other times unwittingly. And actually over the years, a number of stories I've heard from people who, who small things have made a huge difference an example, yeah, I gave is a person who, who basically had was pretty intent on ending his life, and, I, and he thought he would go out for a walk just to sort of work out what the he was going to do with in terms of his method of suicide. And it just so happened, this other person who he didn't really know, and this person could see whatever what looked like pain or anxiety in his face, and that person just said, "How are you doing? Are you okay?" And anything which can interrupt those suicidal thoughts, so anything that can interrupt suicidal thoughts has the potential to save a life. And that could be a smile, asking how you're doing. In many respects, it doesn't really matter. It's anything which conveys a sense of human connection, which is, I value you, you are important, and small things can be so important. Now, I'm not trying to suggest for a second that is a solution to suicide prevention. Of course it's not, it's complex and at different levels. But all I'm saying is that there are so many examples of people talking about somebody intervening and helping them just think differently because that interruption of suicidal thoughts just gives you a second again to reflect on, is my life worth living or not? And again, that sense of reflection, thinking about this idea that suicidal thoughts come and go in these waves, that could get you through a wave of acute crisis. Of course, asking questions about suicide is challenging and, and, and difficult. But I, I would be direct and say, obviously, in a compassionate way, asking somebody about whether they thought about ending their life. But the point when having the conversation is trying to use things like which um, help somebody have a conversation with you rather than just a question and answer session. So having questions which are open. And then when somebody's talking, just to get, trying to get some sense of whether you're understanding what they're saying. So you might want to reflect back to them and summarizing what they're saying, but also crucially, don't question somebody's thoughts because somebody says that they're suicidal. Part of us might be going, oh my God, why on earth are you suicidal? So, and that's not the response we're looking for. We're looking for a response which is saying, actually, I hear you. I hear what you're saying because many people who've experienced suicidal thoughts may have had trauma or difficulties in, in childhood and they maybe feel that they actually they haven't been validated in their feelings and emotions in life. And so what we're trying to do is not dismiss what they're saying, recognize, hear what they're saying and saying, actually, that's real for you. Oh my God, that's, that must be awful. So it's recognizing it. Don't minimize it. Recognize it and say, well, let's, let's think about how we can chat about um, helping each other. So I'll try and help you to maybe get support that you require or make sense of why you're feeling the way you're doing. So listen. Listen, listen. <laughs> the one thing I, I want to talk to you about, because it's fascinating, obviously the effect of COVID-19 on <sighs> everything. But the recent statistics seem to suggest that actually suicide has, you know, you'd assume that a pandemic would increase suicide. But actually, do correct me if I'm wrong here, but they think because governments are providing financial assistance, suicides have actually, they've become rarer during the pandemic. Is that is that correct? Well, it's a bit more nuanced than that. So, okay. so basically, <laughs> but no, but but so you're not wrong, right? But so I was involved in one of the studies mm -hmm. led by a colleague, Jane Perkis, 
in Melbourne and Anne John actually in Swansea here. And basically, they were able to get suicide statistics for 21 countries pre and post pandemic. Now, crucially, the suicide data they have post pandemic is only up until July, end of July okay. of last year. And so this is why, so you were right, Brian, is that there was evidence that in some countries, actually, in the immediate aftermath, in some countries of the pandemic, the suicide rates decreased or stayed the same. But people like me aren't surprised by that because when we think back to last last year and the pandemic kicking off, we had that sense of uncertainty, but that sense of social cohesion, community spirit, let's get through this together type thing. But the concerning bit is, if you go then beyond July and, and the autumn, there's data from Japan, which are now showing that Japan was one of the countries which showed a decrease in suicide at the height, at the start of the pandemic. They've now started seeing an increase in suicide, in particular amongst women, young women. So my, my message is we need to be really, really vigilant because, again, you were right to say, one of the other reasons why we think there wasn't an increase thus far in the early phase was because of furlough and the, all those supports were put in, as well as this sense of togetherness and social cohesion. But to complicate things even further, I'm involved in a study, I'm leading a study in which we're monitoring people's mental health and well-being across the UK since the start of the pandemic. And so what we've seen is that at the first part of the pandemic, at the first lockdown, people's suicidal thoughts went up, right? But their levels of anxiety decreased and their levels of depressive symptoms stayed about the same. So that gives me a bit of cause for concern, again, is that we know at the start of the lockdown, there was increased suicidal thoughts, in particular amongst young people, in particular amongst people with pre-existing mental health problems, and also amongst people who are socially disadvantaged. And then the most recent data we have, which ended in February, March this year, suggests suicidal thoughts might be on the increase again. So we need to be really, really vigilant. Suicide is an increase is not inevitable as a consequence of the pandemic, but we need to be so, so careful, especially when we recover. And that recovery will not be equal. And when, when furlough goes and even more jobs are lost, my concern is we need to basically protect the vulnerable moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to talk about, there's a section in the book on, on people who have been bereaved by suicide. So as well as your mentor, you also lost a dear friend, Claire, in 2008 to suicide. And you write a quite a lot about that and your experiences of regret and guilt, as we said. And I wondered if you were able to talk a bit about that, because I know there will be people listening who have experienced bereavement by suicide. And I that just must be the most I can't, you know, I can't even put it into words. And I suppose that was a difficult, those are the difficult, most difficult parts to write in the book. I mean, I find writing the book really challenging from an emotional perspective, not just reflecting on Claire, but also I'm bringing back memories of all these people I've known or met who've had really struggles. I think Claire's death changed me as a person. I think I, I write that at the start of the book and that. Because for me, obviously, this is all I've ever done is suicide research. And so my every single day is about suicide in some shape or form. And obviously, Claire was such a dear friend. And the year before she died, she uh, she got married to her long-term partner. And we were, I mean, it was at a wedding. It was just four of us at the wedding. And it was just stunning. And But Claire did struggle. And and so basically, the bit which I obviously regret is I, I, like me, like countless others up and down the country, well, what else could I have done? And, and and for me, it is sort of double whammy of 
I'm meant to be the so-called bloody expert or whatever. And that bit, that was really difficult. And actually, the turning point for me about either talking about my own loss came a few years ago when I took part in another BBC documentary, Life After Suicide, which was presented by Angela Samata, who um, lost her husband to suicide. And and so I was one of the advisors in that, and I was interviewed in the book. And Leo Burley, who's the director, and so Leo, I remember having, he had a conversation with me going, well, okay, this would would be really good if you could talk about the research and psychology and so on. And obviously I told him previously about my own loss and he said, would you be willing to talk about that on camera? And I, and I says, oh, probably not, probably not. I've never spoken about it public. That was 2015. And I was really reluctant to do that because it just opened up. Because the way I suppose I'd managed my sort of own mental health challenges is just keep going, keep going, try not to think about things too much and just keep busy and, and keep it in, the, in this box, this compartmentalization idea. But Leo said, I think it would really help others if I would talk about my own experiences. And I did. And it, and it was incredible. The response I got was really, really positive. I felt it opened up a conversation for me to have with myself as well as with others around me. And so I don't think I would have written about Claire's death in the book if that hadn't have happened. And and the number of letters I got after that was broadcast on the BBC from people saying, just thank you, that, that it just made such a difference or it helped them a lot make sense of Suicide can happen to anybody. And this whole idea that suicide is not the fault of one individual. And although if you're bereaved by suicide, it can be so difficult not to blame yourselves. And of course you do, and you do blame yourself and the guilt can be unbearable. But that sense of then, I think it helped me and it hopefully helped others to recognize, well, actually, we sometimes we just can't prevent the deaths of, of our loved ones. And I didn't know if I could continue working in the field because it was really really painful because every single day was, oh, I couldn't go to work to be distracted because I'd go to work and this is what I was doing. And so I really did struggle long and hard about whether I could and did. And thankfully I did. And and I'm so pleased that that I did. And I'm still in touch with Claire's husband. And because the other thing was I would be given these talks about suicide and up until 2015, I was like, oh, here I'm this academic and this sort of ivory tower idea. Whereas ever since 2015, I said, no, I'm going to start saying about what's happened to me. And that's because it shapes how I now research suicide. It, it gives a sense of the urgency. And I understand firsthand, sadly, how difficult it is to prevent suicide on an individual level. So I, what I try to do is bring together that personal, my own story, with the story of obviously others as well as the research evidence because the bottom line is all of us have such a vital voice in terms of understanding and preventing suicide. So as a researcher, yeah, I bring my research credentials, but I hopefully also bring my lived experience credentials. And in all the work that we do now, we always are involving people with lived experience of either having attempted suicide or suicidal thoughts or lost loved ones because that bit is so crucial to us really getting to the heart of this most devastating, devastating issue. What is your hope for the future in terms of, it's so intuitive what to do, isn't it, if we have a physical illness? We, we know the protocols to follow if our children have fevers or they fall over and you know seem to have broken an arm, but it isn't the same for mental health. What are your hopes 
in an ideal world, what does care for people experiencing suicidal thoughts look like? How are we talking about suicide? How are we talking about differently? You know, what exists? There's an amazing organisation, I don't even know, called Maytree. I'm sure you do, the Maytree yeah, Respite yeah, yeah, Centre. Yeah. Amazing, yeah. Where people can go and stay for five days for free and they will look after you if you're having suicidal feelings. Now, to me, I'm like, why is there not a Maytree in every town? You know, what, what are the things you would love to see? Well, so uh, how can I answer that briefly? <laughs> a long, Sorry. I have a long shopping list of what... I think to begin with, though, without getting political... You can get political if you want. <laughs> we, we need parity of esteem for mental and physical health, right? Because... Oh, yes. It, the bottom line is there has been... I agree that in the last decade, there has been a, a renewed focus on mental health, which is great. I'm really pleased to see that. But my God, we so far to go in that... We would never tolerate the, the waiting times for physical health conditions like cancer that we tolerate for mental health conditions. The waiting lists, especially for child and adolescent mental health services, are a disgrace. And, and it, this, the service and response are patchy up and down the country. So I think we need a, a real fresh look at how we do service provision and get people the help and support that you require. Now, the other thing is, big question for me, is that three quarters of all suicides in the UK are by men. But we do not know whether the treatments that we have work for men, psychological treatments in particular. So I think to me, that's like, that's just what? And that's because there hasn't been the investment in the research into mental health. So MQ Research, which is the only dedicated mental health research charity in the UK, MQ of this stat, which is something like, for every person affected, now this is mental health research, not even suicide specifically. So for every person affected by mental health, right? If you look, the amount of funding goes into that compared to every person affected by cancer, 22 times more funding goes into cancer research compared to mental health research. Now, I am not saying don't fund cancer. Of course we have to fund cancer, but it's, I hate to use this term, leveling up. But we basically need to level up so the mental health research gets the support it needs. The government talk about levelling up all the time so they can level up their mental health services. That's why I don't want to use it. Uh, so that's a whole other... Uh, that's another, that's another hour. And then the other one is a, a, a fact that maybe most people don't know is that most people who die by suicide have not been in contact with mental health services in the 12 months before they died. So the question is, well, why is that? Is it that... They have reached out and they haven't got the support that they needed. Is it that there are long waiting lists? Or is it that we just basically missed this whole group of people who are under the radar, who, who are basically not in need of a particular mental health service, but need support more generally? So I think we need to look long and hard at all of this. And then the last thing I would say, I suppose, is we need to basically work at a sort of community and whatever national level it's continuing this conversation because it's having these conversations around mental health and suicide prevention is the way in which we can tackle that stigma. So although stigma has been addressed, I mean, a lot over recent years, it still remains. And like I think, wasn't Harry, Prince Harry your first guest on this podcast? He was, yes. Yeah, so so basically, but that, that starting that conversation is having people like him and others that reaching out, but every one of us has a role in which we, if we continue to talk about it, raise a profile, we'll hopefully make sure we get that levelling up and hopefully people will get the help that they require. And sadly, we will not have 
800,000, I hope it will not have 800,000 people dying by suicide each year. That's around the world, obviously. Global, yeah. Rory, when it is darkest, it's going to help a lot of people. And I, I would honestly recommend it. It's also, there's a lot of stories of hope in it. And I know we know that hearing positive stories can have a, a really good effect on suicide outcomes. So tell me, obviously your work is incredibly difficult and involves, you know, as you say, you, you spend a lot of time talking to people soon after suicide attempts. You also spend a lot of time reading suicide notes. Can you give us a story of hope to end with? You know, of someone, because you mentioned and you touched on that thing of, you know, you, you get to see people and weeks or months later, they are so relieved that it didn't happen. Well, I'll give, I'll give a story um, which isn't in the book, which again illustrates how small things can be so powerful in saving people's lives. So I, I don't know, I gave a talk somewhere a few years ago in London and we do a lot of work, work on positive future thinking. There's a particular way in which particular types of future thoughts we know are associated with suicide risk and others which are protective. And I talked about the, the fact that suicidal thoughts come and go. A couple of years after the, the, the talk, I get this email from this lady and, and she said, I wouldn't be alive today if I hadn't have attended your talk. And I'm not saying what I said was, it's not about me. It's a point that she heard something in my talk about the fact that these thoughts will not be permanent. Actually, she wrote, emailed the precise words that I said. I don't remember them. The precise words I said, and she said that helped her, that interrupted her thoughts in that moment of crisis. And when she gets into that dark place, she thinks of those words, and those words keep her alive. And I think all of us can do something like that for someday we know or someday we may not know. And we will never know necessarily what we're doing could help save their life. So my message of hope is we all, even though the bereavement by suicide is awful and we, we can't bring our loved ones back, but what we can all do is help protect somebody else from that devastation of suicide. I hope that this interview will have helped someone. And if there's anyone listening right now who is, is in that really dark place, please know that this will pass. I know it's a trite cliche but it it won't always feel like this and you are you are loved and you are not a burden and I know personally that that is true that these feelings pass uh, having experienced them myself and um, I'm glad that I have stuck around and pushed through those dark things because it's such a pleasure to be able to chat to you Rory and to do this job to, to try and pull people towards the light when it is darkest why people die by suicide and what we can do to prevent it is out now or it will be when this podcast goes out (laughs) thank you so much Rory to be able to you know we have our Prince Harry's and we have our you know celebrities or whatever you know they get people in and then to be able to hit people with this kind of thing immediately afterwards is so important because this is how things change you know and so I really appreciate you coming on thanks so much Brian absolute delight I really really enjoyed our conversation and hopefully hopefully it helped help somebody either make sense of the pain that they're suffering or a loved one suffering or hopefully help them give them a message of hope that yeah things can get better please reach out
Before you go, please follow Mad World on your podcast app to make sure you never miss an episode. And if you feel like it, leave us a rating and a review. I love to read what you think about the shows and also see your guest suggestions. Mad World is all about helping our listeners and I love hearing from you. The Telegraph also let me loose in column form. So if you'd like to hear even more from me, head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash madworld and you can get your first 30 days access to the website completely free. If you've been affected by anything we've talked about in our podcast today, the following organisations offer free and confidential support over the phone. The Samaritans can be reached 24 hours a day, seven days a week on 116123. Or you can contact the mental health charity Mind for advice on a range of mental health issues. Their phone number is 0300-123-3393. That's 0300-123-3393. They're accessible 9am to 5pm, Monday to Friday, excluding bank holidays. There's also Young Minds who provide support if you're a parent or a carer worried about a child's welfare. They're on 0808 802 5544. That's 0808 802 5544. If you prefer tech support, Shout is a 24-7 UK crisis tech service available for times when people feel they need immediate support. By texting Shout to 85258, you will be put in touch with a trained crisis volunteer who will chat to you via text. And importantly, please remember this. You are not alone. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 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 Mm